once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more. Okay, this is uh, Rogue uh, Philosopher Podcast. Um, it's about time. We should call it that. It's about time, perhaps. Uh, because it's about time I resumed this again. I'm sorry for the, the long hiatus. Um, sometimes, you know, things happen, life happens, it's difficult to keep up one's momentum. But I'm amazed that uh, that some of you are still listening, and I'm, I'll do better by you as, as time passes. I have some ideas for expanding the topics a little bit, a little more. Um, both to delve more deeply into some philosophical concept, concepts, but also to kind of connect them to what we all know and love or experience every day. I mean, TV shows, like, uh, I'll get into Dark, of course, but there's another movie, uh, In the Shadow of the Moon, I believe it's called, which has a similar uh, structure, a narrative structure. Um, Stop. Let's see. Duration. I need to... Um... Let's try that for a minute, and if it keeps talking, I'll, sh- I'll have to shut it off temporarily. Um, also, uh, Black Mirror. I think a lot of these shows have a potential um, application, if not for philosophy itself directly, as we know modern philosophy, at least for metaphysics, what we might have once called metaphysics, where your question is about the soul, or the self, or the value of, of self, or... What is reality, or the facets thereof? What is time? What is space? Um, I'm not certain anymore that one can still argue that metaphysics exists anymore. I think perhaps the closest we, we come to that, maybe, is what the physicists are doing now, where they're talking about the structure of the universe. Are we in a simulation or not? Uh, does the universe have an end? I mean, these are questions that they're trying to answer through mathematical equations and uh, the scientific method. But the answers are more or less uh, from the outside, from a layman such as myself, that they sound almost as arcane and esoteric as our great religions in the West, or even in the East for that matter, because Hinduism and the heresies that came from Hinduism uh, is full of Huge numbers, gigantic numbers. Most of them are divisible by by four hundred thirty-two. Four three two. Uh, uh, the Kali Yuga or the Kalpas are like four hundred thirty-two, four million three hundred twenty thousand years. You know, just these gigantic numbers. Um, but we in the Judeo-Christian world, we're not used to such big numbers uh, as far as cosmology until very recently. So it, it's kind of, it, it also indirectly and subtly demonstrates the differences that underlie the Eastern religions as I understand them and the Western religions as I understand them. Um, because the big numbers are meant to keep you in awe. They're meant to help you break out of illusion or to escape the, the, the wheel of karma, the wheel of samsara in Buddhism. It's... Uh, but it's very similar. Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism, Sikhism, all these religions have a, a, a kind of a similarity when they deal with uh, the wheel, the great karmic wheel, uh, samsara, the wheel of uh, life and death, 
a lot like Fortuna's wheel too. So, so in Hinduism, even the gods eventually fall back down again and they're recycled once more. Not even the gods can escape. But, you know, there are subtle differences between the religions of the East, but in the West, we don't have a sense of trying to escape an imprisoned, uh, a prison planet or a prison universe. That's, you find that more in the Gnostics. And uh, what's really interesting when I do, and eventually I will get to Dark, um, there's a lot of themes in Dark that are Gnostic. Certainly the alchemy, alchemy, I've gone into that a little before, you know, but there's also Gnostic themes. Um, and there's the idea of being trapped in a time loop, which, although I don't think the writers, I think uh, he's drawing mostly from Friedrich Nietzsche and Martin Heidegger, uh, perhaps a little bit from Hegel, uh, certainly from Goethe, because um, they even talk about Goethe in one of the classes in the, in the first season. I think it's episode five. I can't recall exactly which, but it's very important because when what he's talking, what the students are discussing in their high school class has a direct, direct connection to what they're experiencing in the, um, um, what's the city? Winden, the Winden Caves. Uh, it's, it's Ariadne and the, the Minotaur and the Red Thread, uh, you know, to follow the path by is drawing from some Eastern sources indirectly, but I mean, there's something that maybe it's lost on on us now, unless we're well steeped in the history of comparative religion, that is the study of religion in a, a comparative manner that's not theological in nature. It's trying to be scientific and objective, which is laughable in a way, because religion is the least scientific activity humans can uh, interact. I mean, it's even more irrational than, than, than love or romantic love, uh, although all of those things are connected, the love of deity, love of a human being, various forms of eros, all these things are connected to a higher world if you're uh, Platonic. And we sort of live in a, uh, a Greek, uh, a Judeo-Greek world, because Jude Roman religion really, uh, it's dangerous to make sweeping statements, but and and they're they're readily disprovable, but just to oversimplify, but for the sake of the argument, because it doesn't weaken my argument at all, even knowing the the intricacies of Roman religion, it it added very little, um, to the Greco-Roman worldview. It it pretty much copied the Greeks all the way down the line. Uh, it gave different names to stuff, uh, syncretism, and then as 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 Christianity came into the picture, that's when you have some of the other religions from, from the East, from Persia, from China, Manichaeism. You have the blending of uh, Mithraism, which, even though it's called the Mithraic Mysteries, it has nothing to do with Mithra from uh, Iranian cosmology. Yeah, Persian uh, dualism. Uh, but it's, it's strange that that religion is called Mithraism. And it seems to have something to do with, with the slaying of the bull, the, the Tyroctony, but I think as time passes and more and more scholars continue to study the religion of the Roman soldiery, uh, it's pretty clearly not a resynthesizing of Iranian Zoroastrian cosmology. It's it's of its own, on its own plane. It's, it's not entirely syncretic. It's... Uh, Christians accused them of stealing from their 
uh, the last rites, the supper, whatever it is, a lot of their religions look the same as Christianity. The Mithraists might say, well, no, it's you who have stolen from us. Um, I'm not entirely sure we'll, we'll have a satisfactory answer to conclude, but probably Mithraism is older than, uh, than uh, Christianity, if it really indeed did come from Persia, or if it's some derivation of the mysteries. Cause by then, the concept of one god was becoming increasingly popular anyway in the Roman Empire, even among the Greeks, the unknown god, the, the god of the Hellenistus, um, the god of Philo, uh, a, a Jewish Hellenistic philosopher. There, there was an increasing level of... of uh, one one God, uh, what Max Mueller called uh, henism, I believe, wherein even in a polytheistic religion you have many gods, but there's a supreme deity uh, over all of those, and that kind of is the one domineering God. Increasingly so, the others fall by the wayside. Um, so in Dark, he's drawing from a lot of mythological themes, uh, mirroring as in you know, the maze, uh, Ariadne and the Red Thread and the Minotaur. Um, and then, of course, the alchemy, where he's blurring good and evil. There, there are points in the great work where you don't have any clue what's in that tube in the retort, and it's melting, and you don't, you don't know what element it is. Um, in the midst of the, the, the black, the stage of the blackening, the breakdown, where the, the metals are decomposed and reanimated. Uh, by the work of the alchemist. And it, it's, it, I mean, as many years as I've spent reading about alchemy, I, I finally grasped something that maybe, maybe was more difficult for me because I've never watched anything to do with chemistry. The red stage, uh, the, the uh, I don't remember now the exact Latin term for the red. Uh, yeah, it's at the top of my, tip of my tongue here. Uh, it looks like the the same red that you have with mercury mercuric cinnabar. Uh, so I'm no chemist, but it it looks red. It's like suspension. It looks the same as if you bought colloidal gold. It is also red. So of course the the um, philosophers thought, the alchemists thought that they had done it, that they had indeed taken and synthesized lead into gold. But they also believed differently than our. Uh, Newtonian cosmology, because they believed actually that metals grow in the earth and they're alive. They have a kind of life, a slow but yet still living form of, of energy, and they grow and mature like all creatures do. And that includes metals and rocks. And I mean, and, and, and why not? If you're living in a worldview that is more built around theology at its core, uh, everything is is uh, magical or religious. The, the the doctors' medicines have nothing to do with pharmacology. They have to do with the shape of the plant, its appearance, uh, when it's picked. Uh, it's it's sympathetic magic, and the fact that these medicines may have some efficacy is almost beside the point. Because in the end, most stuff that goes wrong that won't kill you. Your body will heal from eventually anyway, no matter what you do to it. It's just either it's going to kill you or you're going to get better. You'll always get better. I mean, and they knew how to set bones and how to take care of uh, head wounds, even in Hippocrates. But, you know, they had they had a very primitive to us uh, idea of um, 
of uh, biology, and they didn't really know. They hadn't. I don't. I think they hadn't the need even to try to find uh, anything b- deeper than gallon. Um, but I I diverged. I diverged too much, unforgivably. Um, but in dark, you you have these themes and Black Mirror. Um, were as dark as more existential time and meaning, uh, and Nietzsche's eternal recurrence, the repetition of history, perhaps even to some extent, it must be buried or difficult to differentiate between Nietzsche, uh, Carl Jung's archetypes, and Mircea Iliade's archetypes. They're they're relatively, they're they're similar in appearance uh, from, uh, you know, from a very very broad view. Um, there are differences, but they're deeper and more subtle. And then Black Mirror, which really is an amazing show. Uh, some of the episodes are very, very, very good. Um, that's dealing with... I mean, every single one of those episodes touches on social media in some way. It touches on our communications grid, our net, our internet, or our identity, how we identify ourselves. Um, it almost seems transfixed by identity through social media, through through technology. What does this mean? Kind of deal. I'm speaking very vaguely, of course, but so I want to expand on this a bit as well, um, and if I can, attempt to apply, if not directly, f- modern philosophy from the the thinkers whose work I've read, but. To to address the questions that these shows may uh, evoke in the watcher, whether you have any academic training in philosophy or not, is quite irrelevant. I think in that, because when you watch some of these shows, you're going to ask these kinds of questions, whether you have memorized a whole bunch of uh, dead uh, <laughs> philosophers and theologians, or or whether you not. Um, because in a way, we're all philosophers, everybody. Anyone who's ever, ever wondered why they were born, why are they here, what happens when you die, you know, you're, you're doing a rudimentary grounding of, of philosophical inquiry, at least. But those are the big questions without any answers. So you, you can almost endlessly philosophize, which is bad for philosophy, because it means that in, in the two to 3,000 years of written history of this discipline, we haven't advanced much at all. In fact, in some ways, we've regressed uh, rather <laughs> rather incredibly, um, especially in the latter part of the 20th and 21st century, with uh, the whole idea of trying to reconstitute and redefine the individual and the well-being of the individual according to uh, group theory and class consciousness and minority consciousness and wherein even the very language that you're born into is is designed by the oppressor to keep you oppressed enslaved in in the mind and even um but i want to do that i want to take on you know more of these shows i'm thinking i'm imagining trying to get four a month up there on the sh- on the website they'll be short um maybe a little longer depending on my uh energy levels or my not how much do I actually understand what I'm talking about, and I want to alternate. I'm going to take you know 
couple of episodes in dark and and go through them with a philosophical fine tooth comb as it were and then go through black mirror and then i mean there's a lot of good stuff on netflix that that uh, i want to bring in because it's fun right and because it's you know one can go on endlessly about uh philosophers but in the context of of something like that something that a lot of people enjoy uh, obviously, if you haven't seen these shows that I start yammering about, I'll be certain at every episode to give you the title, the name of the show, the episode number, the season, and a warning about spoilers, because I don't want to mess it up for people. Because uh, that would, it would mess it up. Uh, but, you know, to try and expand, um, the more time passes, uh, the less the less I feel I can discuss uh, politics, because it that divides, and it's so repellent. I don't think it matters any longer if, if you're in this country, what your political affiliation is, what your beliefs, uh, political or religious, are. The media, it, it's just poisoning people's minds, and it's poisoning it at the very well, the wellspring of, of one's civic responsibilities, civic duty. And at the moment, and I, I don't let anyone off the hook here, but at the moment, the ones pouring the poison in are the, are the Democrats. But tomorrow, just like yesterday, the Republicans will pour the poison into the well. And I just can't see, you know, it's, it's, it, I, I can't promise I'll never, ever, ever discuss politics in a limited manner, but I can only withstand so much. And that's very, very little, actually. Uh, it just infuriates me how a lot of these... 21st century paradigms uh, and these philosophers, they're not helping anyone. They're just adding, they're muddying the waters. Their postmodern relativism continues to poison an entire generation of college students who they and their families are being systematically swindled and robbed out of hundreds of thousands of dollars for an education really that offers them nothing, and it gives them nothing with which to even to pay back those monstrous debts. And the truth for me is I I probably ought not to have gone for my doctorate. I, I ought to have, I don't know, tried harder with my MFA, uh, but at the time nobody would hire a writer unless you had a PhD in writing, which the idea of that is so monstrously stupid and laughable is, is to be a joke. I had a Master's of Fine Arts from one of the top three film schools in the United States. There was nothing I was going to get out of a PhD program, in my opinion. But, uh, or they wanted you to have five pre- prior years of teaching experience. So they just they just keep moving the goalposts, the bastards. But I studied, ultimately, the the only things that I'm good at in, in any way. Good at, I mean, what computer programming? No, I can't do math. Um, uh, History? Well, I don't know. I, I have an interest in history, but it's only a hobby. It's not something I'm, you know, ready to devote a life to, to try to do history. I mean, good God. And the access to books, to sources, it's better now than it's ever been for the blind. But, and I know there are blind historians, but I also know there is a blind astronomer. Uh, there's a blind physician I read about years ago. He's just a, G, a GP doc, a general practitioner. I mean, this programmer, so look at the, but the blindness would be a stumbling block to me, coupled with the fact that I'm not as bright in some of these other subjects. So I, I really studied the only thing I could study, 
and expect to excel. And I thought it would blend well with all my other writing talents and, and skills that I've learned, because I've always studied religion and philosophy anyway. I'm reading Iliade 25 years ago. Um, Joseph Campbell before that, I know that there are many flaws in, in both of their works, um, especially Campbell. I mean, but but uh, they they are the ones who began to articulate questions that I instinctively already had, the, the questions and the answers to some of them which I intuited but hadn't known before or hadn't so solidly uh, arrived at and grasped onto before. But I, I'm, and I'm sure there are a lot of other people out there, so doing philosophy, there's a lot of philosophy podcasts, and I would respectfully um, give any one of them the nod. I mean, standing on the shoulders of giants, as it were. But it doesn't do any good. I mean, and it, unless, and, and some of the thinkers, do, the, the cultural theorists, the cultural critique crowd, uh, Slavoj Žižek comes to mind at once. You know, that's, he, he built his career out of film criticism and media criticism and studies of media. Most of the majority of all these thinkers now, many, many, many of them, uh, all the way back to the Frankfurt School and further, you know, they, they are critiquing mass media and they're critiquing its archetypes and its subliminal, its more subtle messages about, and of course for them, because they're Marxists, it's about class and race and oppression uh, and, and uh, special interest groups, uh, uh, the proletariat being oppressed by the, the bourgeoisie, the cultural bourgeoisie in this case, um, uh, whatever. So many, many, it's, it's very common, and I, I want to still attempt to do something that will separate this podcast out from a number of others that are, are just as good and maybe just as fun even. Um, but in any case, that's why I, I, um, I have a blueprint in my head to broaden out the scope of what I'm bringing in from a popular culture. You know, everything from, par you know, parallel worlds. Uh, I'm not a physicist. I, I'm a nor am I a philosopher of science, which they're important. They're helpful to scientists in a big way. But nonetheless, from a metaphysical standpoint, or even a phenomenological, I mean, because right now, I'm, I'm sure you've heard the Mandela effect. This idea has been messing with my head for five years. I first heard about it in a horror, a creepypasta. I love those things. Maybe I should call it a guilty pleasure, because even though some of them are exceptionally good short stories, uh, yeah, I ought to be there. There ought to be a, a wider variety of audiobooks that I'm diving into. But in any case, those are some of my favorite uh, pastime things, hobby things to listen to, more so than TV shows or. Uh, Although with Netflix, it changes the equation, too, because we've got the descriptive video, the voice, uh, whatever, the, the commentary for the blind. But so I want to bring in more popular stuff that we all experience every day, kind of cultural, uh, you know, in high quality uh, shows, high quality dramas. Um, and the Mandela effect, I mean, maybe there's even a phenomenological way I can analyze this, because it is it is a phenomenological 
question, even though there's no such thing, uh, it's pretty much it's bad memory or it's imperfect memory for the most part. And I mean, I have several examples I can jump into very briefly before I kind of wind this half hour segment up or whatever. Uh, but the, the, the core of it and why it's so spooky uh, is that maybe one in three, one in four, if you poll them, you know, college age people, you know, maybe even up into their late 20s, perhaps, who, who've been acquainted with all this, grew up watching The Matrix, even, you know, if they're older, like in their 30s, the millennial types um, might have grown up watching the first Matrix movie in 99 or 2000, you know, the, as we came, my generation came to age in Star Wars. Um, that and, and now there are kids watching the Star Wars now, but I mean it's not it's not the same, and it's become so convoluted and and almost impossible to follow. But um, so the examples of this come naturally to people. Time slips, jumping the glitch. I mean, when I was in my you know ten or twelve, or it, it did it existed. There was Back to the Future. There was. Uh, Bill and Ted's, what is it, Bill and Ted's Bogus Adventure. Time travel was all over the, the screen, but it wasn't as it is now. It wasn't. Um, but a number of people remember Nelson Mandela's death as occurring sometime in 86, 87. He died in prison on Robbins Island, and many world dignitaries, global dignitaries or whatever, gathered to celebrate his, his death and what he stood for in his life, uh, when in fact the very the, the the truth at least in this timeline is that Nelson Mandela eventually was released from prison and he became the president of South Africa the the leader of of South Africa for i believe two terms i believe it was 8 years i think uh and lived to be nearly 100 years old he didn't die in prison but there are a number of people who swear that that he did and and i'm i i wonder where cuz i can tell you where some of the other things come from the Mandela effect says that a number of people heard Darth Vader in The Empire Strikes Back on the, on the big screen, the film, when Luke confronted him for killing his father. Vader replied and told him the truth about his parental lineage and poor Luke, you know. And what they are sure, James Earl Jones, the voice, what, what he scripted, what he said... Uh, you know, Obi-Wan never told you what happened to your father. Yes, he told me you killed him. No, Luke, I am your father. Okay, no, Luke. Now, the actual line is, no, beat, I am your father. Full stop. I am your father. And a lot of people, I think it's a kind of a, a uh, an optical illusion for cognition. Because a lot of people <clears throat> are pretty sure that he said, no, Luke, I am your father. But it's wrong. However, and this is what other people may not know as well or be as well acquainted with, there is truth. He did say, no, Luke, I am your father. He did. And I'm not talking about parodies or spinoffs or Mel Brooks or anything else. He really did say, no, Luke, I... He said it in the radio play in 1981. There was a, uh, a radio dramatization of the, the three films, Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. Uh, you know, the, the what, the fourth, fifth, and sixth movies in the uh, timeline, but the first movies made by George Lucas, what have you. 
where he did indeed say, no, Luke, I am your father. And that was Darth Vader, his words in the radio play. So it's even more fickle. I don't think as many people know about the radio play. But they're telling the truth. He did say, no, Luke, I am your father. He just didn't say it on the big screen. And so I'm curious, because I think it's natural for us to put Luke into that pause. No, Luke, you know, I think that's sort of an honest mistake. Um, you know, the way a lot of, a lot of uh, sayings or quotes or whatever get misattributed or twisted up or what have you. Uh, obviously, in Isaiah, first book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 6, uh, the wolf will lay down with the kid and the lion with the lamb or all this stuff, the wolf and the lamb, the lion and the kid, whatever, where people will mix up those, uh, what those, what those words say, um, which is interesting. I've never come across a Bible translation, not that I'm an expert on the Bible, that ever talks about the lion and the lamb. It's always the wolf the wolf and the lamb and the, the, the lion and the kid, although it, later on it talks about the lion and the lamb will both know peace, whatever, swords to plowshares, all that kind of stuff. Um, but there are other sources for it. So, I mean, I'm not even talking about that. With No Luke, I Am Your Father, there is a direct source in that radio play from NPR. Uh, um, another one that's, that's, you know, it's an expression my father always used to use. But it's more common than the one that originated it, where people will talk about the proof. The proof. The proof is in the pudding. I mean, how many times have you heard someone say that? No, I'm right. The proof is in the pudding. Which, for a moment, think about that, that structure, that statement, the sentence, how wrong it is. And it's wrong because it's truncated, but it's also, it's also wrong in terms of, of meaning and context. Why the fuck would proof of anything be in a bowl of pudding? Come on. The proof... The proof is in the pudding is a shortened, incorrect version of the proof of the pudding is in the eating, I think. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. And, you know, few of us remember that. Mostly it's the the truncated. You know, it's so obvious I don't even have to argue this. The proof is in the pudding. And so, but it interests me, the phenomenological experience and how it's really interesting I mean, how fickle memory is, you know, how, how subject to reinterpretation. But when you reinterpret the memory, you're actually changing the memory. And that's happening whether you like it or not. Because, you know, what happens, I mean, a great example, uh, cliche, somebody you're dating, you know, the relationship starts out great and it ends badly. If it ends badly enough, it will taint every memory of dating that person and to the point where it looks worse, uh than it was, or in some cases it looks better than it really was. Your, your memory is subject to interpretation, even in f for false memories. And there was a huge problem with this in the 70s or 80s. Chris would know about this more than I would. The, the um, false memories uh, instilled by kind of incompetent uh, psychologists, you know, kind of quackery, the, the new age sort of quackery that it is is clinging to the under hiding under the mantle of philosophy and science through philosophy and and psychology to try to legitimize itself um and unfortunately there 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 is some 
reasonable precedent for uh, pseudoscience because there have been times when psychology was more pseudoscientific than, than uh, now. Um, but of course it all began uh, in theology, in philosophy too, but even more so in theology. The, the evolution of the soul, um, what survives bodily death, what, how does the afterlife, um, how does that evolve and change? And so you can see a progression of the evolution of our perception of the self. Not of the self, but of the, its evolution of the metaphor that we use to identify ourselves and each other. Uh, what is the self? It's, we don't really know. We can go on all day, and we really haven't said much about what it really is. It, we can talk about what we think it could be, and our metaphors for its description, but it's hard to nail it down because it's, it's, it's mercurial, um, what it's made of, who knows? Consciousness, decisions, desire, uh, lacks, desires, needs. But I mean, what, what is it? Is there, there's a permanent um, state of consciousness, of being. And we just think, well, that's who I am. I am this, what, what does that mean? I, I am this strangely shaped, invisible entity shaped by my sensory perceptions in my body. That's not the self. Whatever it is, that's not, that can't be what it is. Well, my emotions, I identify myself through my emotions, my achievements. Well, emotions are temporary um, states of, of the brain. Uh, I'm by no means saying that they're invalid or, you know, I'm not reducing them, but at their core, they're physical experiences. The same way that, um, you know, taking a drug is a physical experience or... Uh, going to sleep is a physical experience. These are brain states of consciousness that are easily altered and alterable. And it's a physical process in, um, in the brain, because everything is in the brain or the body. And we equate that with what is the self, this thing. And for a long time, obviously, if, I don't want to kick a dead horse here, but the soul in, in Judeo-Christian Islam that there, there is an essence that is both is you, um, but it doesn't belong to you. You don't own it. And the whole idea of selling your soul to the devil is quite interesting, actually, because uh, it's not yours to sell. It's, it's in this worldview, uh, the soul belongs to, to God. It's God who made it in our own image and all that from Genesis, blah, blah, blah. So then that means it, it doesn't belong to you. You're renting it. Or somehow, even though you are it, you're also not. You're separated from it. There's this interesting sort of double uh, selfhood. You see it in, really strongly in, in, in the earliest I can recall that it appears. Um, it, there may be sources where it's earlier that I don't know very well. But I definitely know Neoplatonism very well. And what they called it was double selfhood. Where you were both are of this eternal essence, but you are also separated from it, and you're trying to re-emerge connected to it, uh, or somehow to wake yourself up and, and ascend to higher levels of, of consciousness, of wakefulness, of awareness, uh, thus uniting the soul, the lower fragment of the soul, with the higher realm of intellect, 
ultimately with the culmination being union with the one, whatever that means. The one, nobody really even knows what it means. The, the, the ultimate source of being, of reality, the one, the, the one, the great one thing, you know? Um, whereas in, in Plato, it's, it's the, the good, the absolute good, um, and we can only see reflective vestiges of, of absolute good here on earth when things are of high quality or a skillful craftsman or something to that effect. Then that, so double selfhood, you're trying to, as it were, you're trying to go home again, but you're also already there. You're also already there. Um, and yet you can sort of think about yourself thinking, uh, the, the divided self. And then, of course, I'm, make, I'm really, really uh, paraphrasing here for the sake of just uh, making a, a, a broad point. Hegel was one of the last of the, the great abstract platonic thinkers. And really, it's it's he who founded the earliest building blocks of, of postmodern thought that we see now. Um, and whatever wild gyrations of, of 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 intellectualistic abstraction that we see after postmodernism now, which I know very little about, but I find it uninteresting and not very useful. Uh, but who who knows? It may, who knows? Huh. I don't hold out much hope, but okay, who knows? What have you? Um, where you can divide up your, your uh, consciousness to think about thinking. You can't necessarily, you know, you're aware of thoughts, and naturally we, we conclude, well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about this. Uh, really? Uh, and what's the source of it? Nobody knows. Because um, we don't know the source of it. Really, we don't. I mean, look all day, but in the end, people don't know. They're just theories that can't be tested. Um, but then, you know, the, so you're thinking about thinking, or you can kind of take note of your internal introspection. Um, this is, of course, Descartes. You know, my brain is incorruptible, I think, therefore I am. The, my senses can be tricked, but my thoughts cannot be. Um, but I read something a while back that, that, that uh, messed with me a little bit, can you read minds? Of course, you'd say, well, no, of course not. Can you read your own mind? And so you'd immediately reply, well, yes, of course I can. I'm thinking all the time. But you're not. Most of our thoughts, we're experiencing them, it's true. And we think we're thinking them, it is true. We have the voices in our head that, you know, the uh, language, the acquisition of language breaks things down. But I don't think we, when we think we're thinking, most of it is, is, well, obviously the psychoanalysts thought of it as the unconscious, uh, that our thoughts are bubbling up from the wellspring of the unconscious. And I think now with neuropsychology and cognitive uh, neurotheology, they're beginning to understand that the metaphor for the unconscious doesn't hold up anymore. We need to change our, our working uh, metaphorical hypothesis. But the cognition of the brain and brain scan is holding up. And we can watch different areas of the brain that are firing before you're even aware that you're thinking about, you know, like you want a glass of water, let's say. You want a glass of water. Well, your brain, before you even think, wow, I'm thirsty, I want a glass of water, is already beginning to fire up the, the right circuitry in the brain to let you know, okay, I feel kind of thirsty. Uh, and then it has to turn on and activate your body 
and you walk over to get the glass of water, you know. But before you even have decided to go get it, it's already been decided for you beforehand, which really, you know, brings up the free will and determinism uh, theological arguments because that suggests really free will is a kind of a, it's a kind of a, an illusion that now that we have these brain scans we can test it more more scientifically now we can we can actually do scientific tests on the brain now to try to determine whether or not free will exists and i i think for the most part maybe you know for the whole part it really doesn't everything is is determined i can't account for you know sometimes the the capacity of for me to override to make seemingly to make my own choices in the face of uh of of the brain where the lower wants what have you i can't account for that but you can't just say it's free will everything is free i mean it isn't it's not it's not it's it's largely predetermined maybe fully predetermined but um so definitely want to bring in you know other pop culture other media issues with media uh as time continues i want to try to continue to expand it to more of a, a wider variety of of topical analysis um but to make it more relevant to make it more current uh or at least more in line with what many people enjoy or what they're you know is part of them um I suppose if I'd really gotten off the ground four or five years ago with this, yeah, right, you know, Game of Thrones was dominating the headlines. And so then it would be, how can I apply some of my knowledge of theology and philosophy to, and I'm sure it's out there, I'm sure that people have done this, how do I apply that to Game of Thrones? What issues does Game of Thrones raise, for instance, that that could be um, addressed from an inquiry, philosophical or theological, phenomenological inquiry? And then, of course, to, you know, to go into more of the, just uh, more background, backstory of these, some of these theories and ideas and thinkers. Um, and um, potentially the, the ramifications of their, of their ideas. And, you know, but that's, that's my blueprint for getting this thing back off the ground. It's, it's been too long far too long of a hiatus. I, I can only say I'm, that I'm sorry for it. And this is my statement of contrition, my only statement of contrition, is that I'm, I'm, uh, I'll do my best to see to it that this doesn't occur again, uh, doesn't happen again. And I'm, again, thankful for anybody who enjoys listening to this. You know, it's, it's, I find it remarkable. I'm, I could be doing a much better job all along, all down the line. But I think it's one of those things. Uh, the better I get at it, the better it will become. The more the more practiced I'll become, so definitely that's my sort of vague ideas. Um, I think it'll be particularly enjoyable to go into dark into some of the episodes of Black Mirror. Um, who knows what else I might come across on uh, Netflix? Uh, there's a lot of horror. I love horror, obviously. Uh, end of the world kind of uh, Armageddon type stuff. I mean, I think given a little more time and organization, I, I can come up with ideas to weave with some of our most popular, most favorite shows that we're watching. I can find a way to 
um, hopefully without either damaging the the show, uh, the enjoyment of the show, or the higher intellectual um, inquiry of the philosophy it's itself or the uh, cultural theory. Although I'm less interested in, I'm never going to give a Marxian analysis uh, of uh, needful things. I mean, come on, Jesus Christ! You know, it's it's over. It's over and done. You know, Marx, Marx, you know, when I was in film school, it was either Freud or Marx that you had to apply the paradigms of their psychological metaphors to the analysis of every show that, or movie that comes under scrutiny, usually with, for political reasons. And I just think it's reductionist and it's, it's uh, confining and it hobbles the mind rather than expands it. I mean, that's my opinion. Uh, clearly, I have a lot of respect for Freud. Uh, and I at least acknowledge that Marx was a great, a great um, thinker, a great, had a great affect upon the development of the history of the world as we know it. And by great, I mean the breadth of his influence, not that he's wonderful and I agree with him, I don't. And he's wrong uh, in the end, but, but great which is seldom used this way. I don't know why it's the correct way to use the word. Great uh, simply uh, connotes uh, a lot of uh, a vast impact across many lives and many nations. And it's not, oh, it's great. I love what he said. It's great. I, I agree with him. Isn't it great? Well, that's sort of a, it's a weaker use of that, of that word superlatively enjoyable or superlatively and impressively intellectual. Uh, no, I would never or rarely use great. I mean, sometimes, obviously, I would have to use that term to express the breadth of either the breadth of influence or the breadth of erudition, like in Mircea Iliade. Some would disagree with me, but he wrote a lot of books, a lot of them, and he has a massive... Uh, command of philosophical and religious uh, topics, and one could even call him a phenomenologist, phenomenologist of religion. Um, but So then that's sort of my projection, that's sort of my blueprint, and I'm uh, impressed and thankful and glad that there are some of you out there still listening. I understand that if I can go into more into dark, which I'm going to do the next few episodes, it'll come up in a few episodes. A lot of people will listen, and I hope they do. I hope you all do. Um, I hope it's fun. hope I can do it in a way that's, that's um, partially effective and primarily kind of enjoyable, kind of, you know... Um, just just fun to get a different, uh, if I can do it, just to get a different perspective on, on different things from different angles. That's what podcasts are, are really great for. Is, yeah, see? Great. And I do mean that in this case, great, as in uh, highly favorable. It's, it, it's, it's a good tool to self-educate oneself more in this world. I mean, we... We have a library and a wealth of information at our fingertips now. We should be thankful for it. We should be grateful for it. God help us. There's a uh, coronal mass ejection there and everything just gets destroyed. 
Uh, hopefully that doesn't happen. I'd be dead very quickly. I don't want to live in an apocalyptic world after a damned coronal mass ejection. So there we are. Let's let's knock on wood. No, no coronal mass ejection, please. Thank you. Um, but in any case, um, I'm back. I'm glad some of you are still listening. Hopefully you're not too upset. It's been too long, and so that's why I would call this initial episode, It's About Time, Jijam, Jijam, It's About Time. Um, I want to also, I'm going to try to start uh, doing amateur research the area where I live, the the um, the mythology, uh, the folklore of this area, of uh, where I am on the coast, the main coast. You know, you don't have to go far afield. And if you're able to get below the surface, the pop culture folklore, you know, the, down to more urban legends on one level, but on a deeper level than that, the folklore that's been passed down through families, the folk wisdom, the the different stories. And we, we have quite a mix of people on the coast of the state here, and there's lore of the sea, there's lore of mermaids and fairies and all these different creatures. Even now, even now, even though, you know, it's been superseded maybe by cryptozoology and, you know, the the, the new interpretations of of UFOs and cryptozoology and electronic voice phenomena. That stuff's all interesting, as it were, but I'm more interested in the older, deeper uh, folk memory, the folklore, the memory of folklore, uh, if it still lives today, if it still has a place in the world. I think it does, and it'd be fun to kind of dig that up. So I can, I can envision doing a few episodes, maybe if I'm really ambitious, starting a second channel for to study magical, supernatural folklore. And, you know, everything all the way back to the Renaissance magic magicians, you know, alchemists, who knows? I love that. I love alchemy. So in any case, that's it. Uh, Thank you very much, very much indeed. And that's been an episode of The Rogue Philosopher where I've talked pretty rapidly for nearly an hour, uh, longer than I'd intended to. And uh, for now, um, that's the end of this episode and uh, the next one. Maybe, maybe the next one, I'll start diving into um, uh, Black Mirror, perhaps, and then switch to Dark, because I think people really want to do Dark. And I plan to take series one and two in two or three episode blocks and break them down, critical themes that may evoke certain philosophical or or, uh, religious, Gnostic, uh, whatever case may be, ideas. So thank you, thank you much, thank you again, and wish you all well, and all manner of things shall be well. Here we are. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to shut this down now. So be well all, and hopefully, um, hopefully this, you know, won't be, it won't be shut down for another six months. So here we are. Thank you. Go